Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. I'm reading this morning from two passages of Scripture. The first one is Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. This is page 512 in your pew Bibles. 512. I'll also be reading from John chapter 12. But in Psalm 12, verses 25 and 26, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The word Hosanna is central to Palm Sunday. And we hear it sometimes in songs that we sing. We're going to see it in the book of John. But where this word comes from is it's found one time in the Old Testament, and it is that phrase, save us. That is Hosanna in the Old Testament. It's the only time we find that word. And then reading John chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, it's page 898. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him a dinner, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have always with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Now he's quoting from Zechariah in the Old Testament. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. This morning this will be a two-part sermon, part one today and part two next week. Today I'm simply going to walk us through the story of Holy Week. 
Christianity has dubbed this as Holy Week, beginning today from Palm Sunday through Thursday is what I'll talk about this morning. Next Sunday we'll pick back up on Friday, Good Friday, and talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, your word is anointed. I pray that you take your servant and anoint my words. Help us to receive, to be edified, to see you high and lifted up, to see you as you are, your glory, your majesty that fills the universe and fills this house this morning. Speak to us from your word. Lead us, guide us, direct us, and help us this morning to be better disciples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we found out last week in John, the people of God in the Old Testament and carrying on into the New Testament and Jews still today celebrated annual feasts and festivals. They lived their life in the rhythm of the seasons. They would use food to tie them to their heritage and remind them of what God had done. This is brilliant on God's part because nothing, there's nothing like food and the, the smell of food that can bring back nostalgia and can bring back remembrance. We tie certain foods to certain occasions or times in our life. We do this in the United States. On the 4th of July, you're apt to have a hot dog outside. On Thanksgiving, you'll probably have turkey on New Year's, it's ham and beans. We kind of have foods that are attached to certain traditions in our own culture, but this was done in Scripture. This is how they celebrated in the rhythms of the seasons, and so it is with us. It is not by accident that we live our lives in the pattern of years and months and days. These are God-ordained time frames with their cadence set by the interaction of the sun and the earth. The seasons are ordained by God and we live our life in the cadence and the rhythm of those seasons. And so this week we celebrate, we rejoice, we weep, we remember this week what Christ did for us. It is the most important week in Christianity. So this morning I'm simply going to walk through the week with you. I chose John's Gospel this morning to read the story of Palm Sunday, but the story of Palm Sunday is found in all four Gospels, so some of the details that I give are going to pull from all four accounts, all four accounts of the Gospel, and it shows how Scripture naturally evolves, is that all four writers chose to talk about different things that happened during this week. We know some things because Matthew tells us that John is silent on, but we synthesize the story together and we can put together a timeline through all four Gospels of what happened on Holy Week. The first day, what we call Palm Sunday today, was a day of triumph. If you didn't know what was to come, you could not predict that from a few days before that the man the people were celebrating, waving palms, throwing things down for him to enter in on. This is the same man that in less than a week is going to die a brutal, cruel death by nailing him to a cross. 
Jesus had been in Jericho. He's making his way back from Jericho toward Jerusalem. It was in Jericho where he encountered Zacchaeus, the man who climbs up into a tree because he's so short to see Jesus and to cry out to him. And he gets Jesus' attention. And that's where that story happens. And after Jericho, he starts traveling toward Jerusalem. There was near Jerusalem in that area a village called Bethphage. And in Bethphage, he tells two disciples, and I'll tell you this morning, I'm probably going to read more scripture this morning than I ever have in my life in a sermon. But I want the scripture to tell the story this morning. So the disciples, he tells the two disciples, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. And they were untying the colt, and its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? This would be the equivalent of somebody getting into your car with the keys and just saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to take this. Uh, this is what's happening. They own the colt, and strangers are untying it. They think that somebody is stealing it, obviously. And they replied, the Lord needs it. And that seemed to be a good enough answer. They brought it to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And he went along. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus' response was, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus is going to be praised. He is going to receive glory because He is do it. And He said, if these people don't do it, the rocks are going to cry out my praises. I will be glorified. He is jealous of His glory. He guards His glory. He cherishes His own glory. Jesus is self-exalting and He commands us to exalt Him. It's the language of the Psalms commanding us to join in and let us praise Him. It's calling us to praise and exalt Him. Jesus is the only one in the universe that has the right to exalt Himself. And He guards His glory and He cherishes it and He takes and He exalts His own self. If people were to praise us like that, we would know inherently that we're not worthy of that. But Jesus is worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor. So why did they cry Hosanna? What is Hosanna? This is not a word that you use in any other place in your everyday language. Nobody goes around and says Hosanna because it's not really an English word. It's sort of akin to saying adios. If you say adios, you're speaking in another language, and <clears throat> nearly that's what you're doing with the word Hosanna. The word Hosanna <clears throat> is, we've, we've changed it a little bit, but it's very close to the original word in your New Testament. And that original word in your New Testament is Osana. And all they did was they added an H on the front of it, and they accented the second syllable instead of the third, and that's the only changes they made. And when you do that, you come up with Hosanna. But that wasn't even the original word. The original word goes back to Psalm 18. And it is a, actually a phrase. There's two words that it makes up that, that Hosanna represents. And it is the words, save us. And it is a cry unto the Lord. It is with an exclamation point. It is a prayer of urgency. Save us. 
It's like if we were all, all of us out in the ocean and we were about to drown and one of us just yells out, we see a, a boat and we scream out, save us. That is the sense of urgency that is being conveyed in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. Save us, O Lord. It's a cry for help. But the next verse in Psalm 18 immediately shifts gears and now it's a praise unto the Lord. Blessed is He. After it's a cry for help, it's blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you in the house of the Lord. And by the time of Jesus, roughly a thousand years later after this psalm is written, after this thousand years of time, it had been a phrase that was used as both a cry for help and also as a praise. Hosanna. Because it was so tied to that next verse, blessed. A cry of praise that follows a cry for help. And so as Jesus enters into the city, into Jerusalem, He's leaving on this Bethphage and He's coming in on a donkey. And they pick up, they find these palm branches and they're waving them and crying out, Hosanna. What they're doing is they're quoting Psalm 118. They're saying, save us, Jesus. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And they're applying what the psalmist cried out in Psalm 18, they're saying, this is the one it applies to. We know, we're, we're, we're quoting the psalm saying, save us and blessed is the King of Israel. There was at that time an ancient Near East tradition that said that if a king were to come into the city riding a horse, that it meant that it was a sign of war. He was a king of war. And if a king came into the city riding a donkey, it meant that he came in peace. And Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah and rides in on a donkey to show that I am the Prince of Peace. I come in peace. He rides the donkey fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly. Now this is Old Testament. This is hundreds of years. I don't know, five, six, seven hundred years before the time of Jesus. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you. Righteous, having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a, full, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That is Palm Sunday. Two miles east of Jerusalem, it's still there today, is a village called Bethany. And it is here that on Palm Sunday, on Sunday evening, that Jesus, <clears throat> after riding triumphant into Jerusalem, leaves Jerusalem, makes the two-mile journey back to Bethany, and He spends the night there. And we'll see throughout the week this is what he does. He spends the night in Bethany and he makes his trip into the city each day. Monday morning, <clears throat> the sun rises on Bethany and Jesus returns back to Jerusalem with his disciples. Along the way, he sees a fig tree that is not bearing fruit and he curses it. And nothing happens at that moment, but that's put a pin in that because the next day we're going to see what happens when he curses the fig tree. Jesus rides into the, arrives into the city and He goes straight to the temple and He finds money changers who are corrupt. These money changers are people who are robbing people with predatory interest rates when they exchange people's foreign currency for Jewish money when they would come. And this is the week of the Passover, so there's a lot of people, extra people in the city that have come to celebrate Passover. And the money changers were simply charging predatory rates to exchange the currency. And then there were people who would bring their own sacrifice with them because you were supposed to bring a sacrifice to the temple. And the temple officials would inspect the animals 
and declare them unworthy. That's not good enough to be sacrificed here, but you're in luck because we have animals for sale right here. And they would charge the people high prices on site, inflated prices. The worship of God had become a money-making enterprise for the religious rulers in the temple. They were cleaning house on the backs of the poor and the average person. And Jesus saw this and He overturns the tables and He clears the temple and He cries out, It is written in Scripture, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. The worship of God becoming a money-making enterprise. Sound familiar? I mean, we, we, we witness this today. And I wonder what God must think when He sees that and what the judgment of God that will come um, on those things. And then Monday evening, Jesus goes back to Bethany and He spends the night. Tuesday is a very busy day. I would not have time this morning to talk about all that Scripture says of what Jesus does on Tuesday. But on Tuesday, Jesus and His disciples return back to Jerusalem. And on their way into town, Peter sees the fig tree that Jesus cursed and says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you that whosoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that when he says it, it will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have done anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you and your trespasses. They keep moving on. Jesus gives this lesson about the fig tree that He cursed the day before. And then they move on back to the temple and the priests are ready. The elders are ready for Jesus this time. And they set word traps. They do these riddles and this just goes on. And I, I can't even cover all the riddles and word traps that they try to do to Jesus. But to give you an example of one of them, they, they came to Jerusalem and as He was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders met Him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Because this is only 24 hours after he cleans house in the temple. And so they said, What authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do this? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And so Jesus asked them the question, Was the baptism of John from heaven or was it of man? Answer me. And they discussed it. They have the sidebar and they discuss it. And they said, if we say it was from heaven, then he will say, why didn't you then believe John the Baptist? But if we will say it was from man, that's a problem because the Bible says they were afraid of the people for they all held John the Baptist as a prophet. So the, the priests and elders, they, they're in a lose-lose situation. There is no answer that they can give to Jesus. And so they answer Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, Okay, you didn't answer my question, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Just brilliant rhetoric and, and wordplay that's going on here, this back and forth between Jesus and the rulers. And after this riddle, he starts telling parables. And all the parables that Tuesday are designed to indict the religious leaders. He would go on to tell them, these were his words, he said, Tax collectors and prostitutes are going to get into the kingdom of God before you do, because they, the religious rulers, did not believe John the Baptist, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And so they have a better chance of getting in than you do. 
So he tells another parable and he concludes it by saying, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So the chief priests and elders, Pharisees, they're, they're in a quandary because they're afraid of the people. The people are worshiping him. The people are cutting off palm branches and crying out, Hosanna. And they want, to, they want to arrest him. They want to try him on charges. And so they're stuck. And so they would continue to try to trip him up by asking questions about whether or not a Jew should pay taxes to Rome. Israel at the time was under Roman rule. And which is where we get the phrase, render under, unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto God the things that are God's. And they try to trip him up with that. And then they present him a word problem. They said, okay, there was this woman and she was married to this guy. There were seven brothers, her husband dies, and so the next brother takes her, and they're married, and he dies, and so on, until all seven brothers have been married to her, and they all die, and she outlives all of them. And they said, okay, if you're so smart in the resurrection, whose wife is she? And Jesus gives an answer, you do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. And He just gives them a brilliant scriptural answer, and when the crowd hears it, they were astonished. The Bible says they were astonished at his, at his teaching. They keep trying to trip him up on this Tuesday. One of them was a lawyer and they asked a question to test him. They said, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And he says, I'll give you a bonus. The second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now the, the law and the prophets were the, the Old Testament in Judaism is separated into three categories. You have, you have the, the writings and the law and the prophets. You, you have these categories. And what he's saying when he tells them this is the entire Old Testament, all your scriptures hang on the two commandments. Love God first with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Everything hangs on those two commandments. So they keep trying to to trip them up. And then Jesus poses to them a question from the Psalms that they can't answer. Now he goes back at them. And it, it's the Psalm, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit here on my right hand. And he asks who he's talking to. And he just, he's really, he's like, okay, I'll pose these questions to you. And the Bible says they could not answer his question. And the Bible says, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They knew that they had been beat. Jesus then openly rebukes the Pharisees. At first he does it in parables and they picked up, hey, I think he's talking about us. Uh, and Jesus says, okay, now I'm going to talk directly to you. And then he tells the people, they preach, but they do not practice. So he's looking at the people, the, the crowd and saying, these people, they preach, they don't practice what they preach. And then he goes and he says, and what is has to be, I imagine, the most scorching polemic anywhere in the Bible. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, and you neither enter yourselves nor you allow those who would go enter in to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you travel across land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes a convert, you have made him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. 
Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whosoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whosoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you will pay tithe on mint and dill and cumin. He's talking about minuscule little things. You'll pay tithes on those. But you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you have ought to done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outward appear beautiful, but are within full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I mean, they're, they're starting to get the message. And he keeps going, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. You serpents, you brood of vipers. He calls them snakes. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I will send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And this certainly was going to come true. And after all of that, a very busy Tuesday, Jesus lives the, leaves the temple. You'd think He would go back to Bethany. He's had a full day, but no, he goes to the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem. And in the time of Christ, the Mount of Olives had been used as a cemetery already for a thousand years. For the last 2,000 years, they have still used that mountain as a cemetery. There are over 150,000 people buried in the Mount of Olives. It's very unchanged today from what it was like at the time of Christ if you were to visit there. There are debates about the age of the tree, but there are some who say that the trees, there are at least five trees there that could have been there at the time of Christ. The olive tree is the oldest living tree on the planet. And it's nothing for them to live a thousand years and maybe the original trees from the time of Christ. And it is here on a Tuesday afternoon that Jesus gives what we call the Olivet Discourse. These are very well-known passages of Scripture that speak of Jerusalem's destruction, speaks of the coming of the Son of Man, the parable of the ten virgins, parables about money, parables about the final judgment, all happen on this Tuesday afternoon at the Mount of Olives. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on a glorious throne, and before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And on and on. He continues to teach and just give this discourse. And the Bible says that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He knows he's going to be crucified that week. And he tells his followers, I will be crucified. All of this is on a Tuesday. Wednesday in Christianity is dubbed Holy Wednesday, and we really don't know what Jesus did on this day. The scriptures are fairly silent. Tradition says he likely rested in Bethany after two very full days. He probably stays in Bethany and rests. We do know on this Wednesday that Judas and the Sanhedrin court are preparing for his arrest. They are plotting behind the scenes. They are making their moves. They are going to arrest Jesus. And then we come to Thursday. Thursday is outside of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Thursday is fairly well known in Christianity as Monday Thursday. It's M-A-U-N-D-Y, Monday. And it is, comes from a word that means command. It's where Jesus at the Passover says, I give you a new commandment. And it is this commandment that we call Monday Thursday. And now the term Monday in Christianity also often refers to the washing of one another's feet. Uh, it's in that same tradition. And it's all because of what happens on Thursday. So on Thursday, Jesus sends Peter and John from Bethany, two miles east, back into the city. He says, I want you to go to this upper room and I want you to prepare the Passover feast. And in the evening after sunset, during the time where they meet together for this Passover feast, it's immortalized in the painting of the Last Supper. This is what's happening in the painting of the Last Supper uh, where for unexplained reasons, all 12 disciples and Jesus decide to sit on one side of the table, I guess so they can all have their picture taken. Uh, there is a I saw a comic strip one time where Jesus and his disciples walk into a restaurant and they say, table for 26, please, um, because they can, only, they can only sit on one side of the table. Um, of course, we know it really wasn't like this, but uh, it's been immortalized in this painting. And it is here after sunset that Jesus gets down and washes his disciples' feet as they prepare for the Passover meal. There are some faith traditions that hold service on this Thursday. This Thursday they will hold service and they will wash each other's feet in an observance of what Christ taught us that night. John records this. Then he, Jesus, poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And this was common in this time. People would, you would wash the feet of people who came uh, to stay with you. It was just a common practice because the roads were dusty and dirty and your feet would get nasty and it was, it was something that you would do to serve someone to wash their feet. So it was very much a cultural thing going on here. And he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said, Oh Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. It's like anything, if I can't be part of you, do, do what you have to do. This was the attitude that, that kept Peter 
even during his failures, this attitude kept Peter. Lord, I recognize who you are. Like, what's the difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter has a revelation of who Jesus really is. Judas never gets it. Peter is the one that declares, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter has the revelation. Judas, he never sees it, so he can sell him out. This is Passover night. When God was delivering in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, when God was delivering the children of Israel out of slavery in the Old Testament, He sent the death angel through the land. This was the last of the final judgments upon Egypt. And the death angel was going to go through the land and it was going to kill the firstborn of every household in the land. And that was the curse. It was God's sovereign. It was His judgment. All through the land, the firstborn would die that night. The Jews were commanded to kill a lamb and to smear the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. So it was the head of the household would take the blood and smear the blood of the lamb on the doorpost so that when the death angel would see the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the death angel would pass over that house. He's at this house, he sees the blood, he passes over the house, and he would not execute divine judgment. And so every year the Jews celebrated this with the feast of Passover, commemorating this time. Now, during Passover, the true Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the whole world, the declaration of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world, which is a radical statement because that only applied to Jews and John the Baptist is saying, no, we're, we're throwing it open. This now, Jesus is the true Israelite. All the promises of God in the Old Testament find their consummation in Christ and He is going to turn around and save the entire world for those who put their faith and trust in Him. They were celebrating the last Passover feast that would ever be needed because it was the blood of that Lamb that when applied to the life of believers would turn the wrath of God into the grace and the favor of God. And it was during this Last Supper that Jesus exposes Judas as the traitor. And then He gives this new commandment, Monday, Thursday, A new commandment I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. How will people know that we're disciples of Christ? Well, Jesus says the primary marker is that when you show love for one another, that's how people know we're disciples. When I love you because you're a disciple, you're a follower. It's that community of faith. It's that, it's that caring that goes beyond even family binds and ties, but it's something that as a believer we are all buried with Christ. We are all united and identify with Christ. And I have to, I, don't, I, I get to love you. You get to love me. And that's how the world knows that we're disciples. He then looks at Peter and he foretells Peter's denial of him. And Peter says, Jesus, I will die for you. And Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And in just a few hours, when Peter, early that morning, hears the rooster crow, he knows, he remembers, I've just denied the Lord three times. It was at the Last Supper that Jesus said these words. This is where we get the, the practice of the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist. All really the same thing, the practice of, of taking in the, the fruit of the vine and, and the, the bread, the wafer, to commemorate the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It comes from this Thursday evening. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you, and it is the new covenant of my blood. And after the supper, they leave the room. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the base of the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem. And the Bible says it was customary for Jesus to go here. And so in Luke 22, when he came to the place, he said to them, he tells his disciples, I want you to pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The way that that verse is structured, it could be figurative just meaning that he was sweating profusely. But it is also very possible that it is literal. There is a medical condition, it's called hematidrosis, and it is when a person is under such agony and stress and distress that the capillaries underneath the sweat glands begin to burst and the blood comes through the sweat glands and people actually start sweating blood. And it is very possible, I think it's likely, that this is saying that the the agony, the stress, the despair that he is under. Not, yes, for what is to come. I mean, if you knew you were going to be crucified and you had witnessed a lot of crucifixions, crucifixion is not uncommon, it's common. The first century historian Josephus says, when you would come into the road of Rome, that in Rome, travelers coming in would be greeted on both sides of the road by people nailed to crosses, criminals. And this was a signal to you that if you break the law in this town, that is your fate. And the Romans ruling Palestine had instituted this same uh, policy in Jerusalem. And so criminals, common criminals, this is how, this was their equivalent to the gas chamber or the electric chair. This is how they executed people. But rather than do it behind the curtain, they do it very publicly so the whole world can see. You break the law here, this is the fate that awaits you. This is the death penalty. And Jesus knows, he's seen this in his mind, like all the people have, and he knows this is awaiting him. And yes, that would be enough to cause you that amount of distress. But the cup that he was trying, he was saying, Father, if any way, let me pass this cup, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It was the cup of the sin that he took on every sin ever committed in the history of the universe. And it was in that cup. And he had to drink of that cup of suffering. And that kind of weight, the weight of sin, would have been enough to break him physically, to cause this condition to sweat blood. Judas knows where Jesus is going to be that night. So Jesus comes with a crowd. The Bible just says it was a crowd. There were soldiers, chief priests, officers of the temple. They come and they meet him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders, Who had come out against him? Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs? 
I was with you day after day in the temple and you didn't lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. They didn't do it in the temple because they were afraid of the people. We see that in early, earlier chapters. They don't want to touch him there. They want to arrest him, but not there because of fear of the people. So they go out by night and they, they chase him down with this Roman SWAT team like a common criminal. But that is not how the story ends. It's how the sermon ends this week. But thank God that's not how the story ends. Next week, we will honor the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary and rejoice in His triumph over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And what I challenge all of us this morning is that this week, this holy week, and there are churches, and I, I, I respect traditions that do this, that really celebrate and make much of this week. Uh, and in years to come, I would like to do that uh, even, even more uh, than we will this, this week because I think there's something to be said about living in those patterns and rhythms to, to honor God in these ways. But this week, as the secular life and the fog of secularity try to swallow you whole, try to remember each day, today, Jesus, this is what you did for me. This is what happened all those years ago on Palm Sunday. These are real historical events that really happened. If you could roll back time, you could witness all of these events that Jesus was greeted with a triumphant uh, entry into Jerusalem. People crying unto Him, waving palms, giving Him praise. And, and as the week progressed, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, all of this leading up to that Good Friday. This week, as that our lives tie us up. Remember what Jesus did for us. We can remember and reflect and honor our Lord Jesus Christ this week in a way that He will count as worship. And As we get ready to, to sing again, uh, let's pray. Father, we have simply read from Your Word what happened all those centuries ago and we are grateful we are eternally indebted to you, but we don't have a debtor's ethic. We know we can never repay you. We don't try to repay you. We simply honor you by placing our faith and confidence and trust in you, by submitting our entire lives to you, that you are truly the Lord of our life, that you lord over us in ways that love us, and we are submitted to you this morning. Lord, and as we live out this week, we will be in remembrance of what you did for us on Calvary and that that is the, the source of our salvation. Father, as a missionary once wrote, Upon a life that I did not live and upon a death that I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. Our salvation is not found in us. As our brother said this morning, we can't earn it. We can't work for it. It doesn't matter how good we are. We can't tick any boxes. We simply come to you as humble sinners in need of salvation. And we're so grateful, Lord, that you put your arms around us and say, whosoever will, let him come that you welcome us to a throne of grace today. Lord, we simply bask in that reality, the glory and the majesty of Calvary and what you did for us. So Lord, this week, during Holy Week, keep us, keep us in remembrance to honor you. And Lord, today we give you thanks and praise. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Sister Peggy.